We talk a lot about impact investing on this show, and while we tend to focus on the deals and the companies, we often gloss over the more challenging process of impact, measurement, and management. Right now is an important time to explore these issues because the structures of impact investing are at an inflection point. The market has realized the importance of using consistent systems, and the frameworks are starting to consolidate. They're harmonizing. And today we have Dean Hand on the show to help us crack it open and see how it all works. She's Chief Research Officer at the GIN, the Global Impact Investment Network, and she's had long experience with impact reporting both at the GIN, which is a pivotal player in developing these impact measurement and management systems, but also in her travels and her personal life. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. In this episode, Dean explains both the origins and the utility of the leading frameworks that the GIN manages, but we also explore the broader alphabet soup of framework standards and principles that are out there. I was hoping we would end up defining a best practice model for stacking the various impact frameworks together. But what became clear is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. And instead, it's more like a recipe, with a range of ingredients to choose from to suit your needs. And on this important topic, I want to take the research further. So I'm going to take the insights from this episode with Dean, and from the next few episodes with some other leading practitioners, and pull it all together into a special report. It'll have input from global leaders in this space with case studies highlighting leading practice in the market. It should be out soon, but if you don't want to miss it, sign up for my newsletter and you'll get it in your inbox as soon as it's released. You can sign up on my website at johntreadgold.com. And of course, that's where you'll find all the show notes from the podcast and all my other various writings and work. All right. Well, enough out of me. Let's get into the episode. Here's my conversation with Dean Hand. Here we go. Dean, great to have you here today. Thanks for giving us some time. It's a pleasure. Nice to see you, John. Now, look, impact measurement is something we talk a lot about on this show, uh, but I've never dedicated a whole episode to it, and, and I couldn't think of a better guest to get us started. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. But look, uh, and to start off with some of the basics, let's just jump into how do you define impact measurement? What does it mean to you? So I always think that you can't really talk about impact measurement without the word management in there. For me, the two things go hand in hand and are synonymous in many ways because there's such an important relationship between them. I, I also I think very importantly that investors are really trying to aim for trying to understand what's happening in their portfolio in order to do something else. And that is really the kind of management bit, if you think about it. In other words, you, you don't just measure for measurement's sake. What you're trying to actually do is get to a point where you can actually make decisions about what to do with what you found. So it really helps you to get to know your portfolio, for example, or investment, if it's a single investment, and be able to actually then make those decisions accordingly. But it, it really is in the eye of what that investor actually wants to achieve. Look, I think we're at an interesting point right now. And, and I think our audience all appreciate the hard work that impact investors do to, to measure both the financial returns of their investments, as well as the, the social and environmental impacts. 
And while there are you know, centuries of sort of global accounting standards to cover the finance side, there's no universal standard for impact measurement. But what we are seeing is, is some genuine harmonization there. And, and gin has been central to this. And so can you help us understand the journey from the early days of the gin and how the Iris Plus uh, system of metrics evolved? Sure. I love your comparison with the financial um, industry because I often have to remind ourselves that it took, it took the financial industry almost 150 years to get to this point. So sometimes we need to just be a little bit gentle on ourselves in terms of how, how much work is actually involved in getting to the point of where we are now. And we are at an interesting juncture. I think one of the things before I talk a little bit about the Iris Plus system and how we got here is important to actually remember is, is that there are many kinds of purposes that people are actually looking for from their investments. So firstly, some of it relates to just the basics of actual disclosures. Some of it also relates to how we label and define things, okay? And some of it also relates to what we're actually trying to do to advance our investment practices um, in a particular way. So I think that's part of the problem with why people get so confused, and and we we can come back to that, but let me revert to Iris Plus as a system, and really what it is, is it's a system that allows an investor to be able to actually understand their measurement and management of their um, portfolio in order to be able to optimize their performance. Its origin story is really interesting, because where it started 10, 12 years ago was really to try and Firstly, just harmonize across the definitions that actually existed out there, mostly um, in microfinance to a certain extent, but it really just tried to say, what are all the definitions to describe the same thing? Because at that stage, there were so many different ways of describing just one particular data point. And the idea was to try and harmonize those in a number of different ways, but largely to get people into a common language and a common taxonomy. I came across Iris for the first time when I was kind of cutting my teeth in the investment industry when it was Iris 1.0. We're now talking about Iris 5.6.0. And so we've gone through these very rigorous iteration processes in order to be able to make sure that this taxonomy actually has single definitions for each data point. In each case, Those are very carefully worked out with experts in thematic areas in order to be able to make sure that we're not just thinking up pieces of information around various sectors. The gin doesn't try and be an expert in every single sector. But what we do is draw in a whole lot of players. So, for example, the International Labour Organization when it comes to talking about quality jobs so that we can actually build... Um, a a set of core metrics around a particular theme based on that empirical evidence. What should that metric look like? On top of that, what's also happened is actually harmonizing various other frameworks that sit within this frame in order to be able to actually say, how does this metric link to the SDGs, for example, or the joint indicators that um, most DFIs use, or the HIPSO, for example, to be able to actually harmonize those frameworks across the metrics to make it really easier for for people to actually use. 
So that's really the origin story of how it actually came about. You know, there's a whole piece, series of puzzle pieces around it that, that have built out from it. But I'll come to those in a minute if that's something that you want to actually explore. But let me stop there on just the Iris Plus um, taxonomy and system and how it actually came to be. Well, that's right. No, I really appreciate that. And it is good to, to keep it modular. And, and there's so many pieces of the puzzle. And in some ways, this process of harmonization is trying to reduce those and consolidate and, and find how the biggest pieces connect together. And Iris Plus, built by the Jin, is very good at connecting. And so could you help us understand some of the other major puzzle pieces uh, that investors are using? You've got the IFC's operating principles for impact management is a key one. Also the impact management project um, for you know investors that may not be deeply ensconced in this world if they were sort of starting to think about we really want to engage with this impact investing world but but impact measurement just seems so complex is there sort of a, a best practice model for for pulling these pieces together and let me just fess up with something that i think is actually important maybe to put um, in context for your listeners here is, is that I come from a research background. Um, that's my bread and butter. That's what I look at. I listen to, whether it's via data or research that we might conduct empirically or even anecdotally to investors and what they actually struggle with. The gin, obviously, and impact investing by its very nature, a fundamental tenant is impact measurement and management. Um, that's what defines it in many respects, but I am more of the research orientation than just the IMM experts specifically. So the way in which I understand this is, is that investors are often using frameworks for different things. So if we look at the operating principles for impact management, for example, that really speaks to process. It really speaks to nine principles that say, if you follow these kinds of processes, chances are you have a good or solid basis on which to run your impact management um, portfolio, okay? One of the things from a research point of view that is very curious for us is, is that what we don't know about those processes is whether there is a relationship between those processes and the impact outputs that we might seek at any point in time. In other words, the results of your impact performance. That's where a kind of research gap actually exists at the moment. But putting that aside, because if we waited for a perfect world, um, we wouldn't do anything. Those principles are really good solid basis on which an investment manager might want to start an investment practice. What they need to probably tie it up with is a set of metrics to be able to actually say, because some of the principles do talk to set targets, set goals. Now, how do you do that? You use that with a set of metrics. So that's an example of how you can actually use those two frameworks, call it that, in a harmonized way. In other words, they're suiting different purposes. And it's the same thing with an impact classification system, which is the impact management project's ABC system, for example, which interestingly, we've just integrated and acquired into the IRIS Plus system. So within that, we are now starting to do crosswalks between the way in which you might map a portfolio in the ABCs, for example, and how that speaks to the impact metrics that sit within the IRIS Plus system. And that's an important kind of 
maybe those are two examples, if I can put it that way, that help you understand how to use frameworks in different ways. So some people are using frameworks, for example, to understand their risk. So an ESG investor might do that or use a particular framework to do that. Some are trying to understand how their portfolio maps in a way that they can compare it to another investor, for example. Some are trying to understand their processes in order to be able to actually make sure that they are following good practices. And others are trying to pull all those together. Oh, look, that's great. Really, really great to see how those pieces fit together. I think that's really valuable, really practical lessons for people. And we're talking a lot about definitions. Communication is where I come from, from a lot of these things. And something that comes up a lot, but I think, I think we are starting to get a better feel for it, is this idea of additionality. You know, for a long time, that was central to, to classifying impact, and there was some confusion about it. But I think uh, recently, it's given way to this idea of contribution. So I'd wonder how uh, the gin views this, uh, this word. We think that contribution is a crucial element of impact investing. We think that it speaks enormously to one of the characteristics that we have of, of impact investing as part of the definition of how it is that you actually understand and manage your portfolio. Now, the only way in which you can actually do that is really to understand the inputs that you are making as an investor. Those inputs, for example, could be the obvious one, which is your capital, okay? But it's also the other ones that are perhaps not so obvious. So, for example, the terms and under which you either place that capital in an equity deal, for example, or in a debt transaction. You know, does the loan get recalled very quickly or slowly? Or is there, is there some patience in the, in the debt structure that you're putting together for a particular investment? Those terms all contribute to the success or the outcome of the, both the financial performance as well as the impact performance. Other things that are inputs are, are technical assistance, for example, and sometimes even things like relationships that you might have with your investee company and understanding what the impact of this, of this investment is on the ground with the, those that ultimately feel the results of what you're trying to achieve from an impact point of view. Does it meet their needs, for example? And how are you using that information? So contribution is a crucial element of this um, whole process. And it provides a feedback loop that allows investors to be able to actually make decisions. If I exit suddenly, for example, as opposed to in consort with the investee company and the needs that they are trying to service, does that make a difference in terms of the long-term sustainable results that I'm trying to actually achieve as an investor? Those are crucial pieces of feedback that help an investor make a decision about the timing of an exit, for example, and the terms of that exit. So contribution is absolutely crucial. I think, you know, in the early days of, and, and I have a few wrinkles um, here to be able to speak about the early days and that I've, I've probably had more rubber on the road experience in terms of just trying to do this both practically in an, in an investment company and then also on the research and knowledge side of it. But what is critical is being able to, for an investor, you know, the idea of additionality 
probably was born out of kind of like this idea of thinking about how do we make a difference? And the only conclusion that people, in the absence of any other information, is to say, well, if this investment somehow did something that wasn't there before, Unfortunately, there was also almost, I mean, it's a, it's a noble thought and useful on some level, but very useless if you can't, in fact, actually easily track that and it doesn't, in fact, actually help you to make adjustments to your investment strategy. And so, you know, there's no usefulness beyond the idea of additionality in terms of portfolio management and the management of your results that contribution offers in a much better and stronger way. I might not have strung that sentence together very neatly, but I hope you do understand what I'm saying. No, I think so. I think I think contribution really is the key piece and understanding the investor contribution to a company. And you covered off on, yes, there's capital, but there's also management skills, having a long time horizon. I think that that's really come through and, and, and we get a bit mixed up with, are we judging the impact of the company or are we judging the impact of the investor? And, and they're both leading towards the beneficiary's perspective. They're both one and the same thing, but from those individual groups, uh, we need to think about it and measure it. Yeah, so, so maybe they're not quite one and the same thing, but they're both very valuable. They both offer enormously important information. Perhaps the emphasis, and I say emphasis not in an effort to actually say that investor contribution is more important than an investee contribution. It's not, they're just different. Um, but the focus where we're helping investors is to focus on investor contribution and, and how it is that they're using those feedback loops to be able to actually address changes in their portfolio. So a piece of work that we're doing at the gin at the moment is to work with investors that primarily focus on listed equities as an asset class. Now, traditionally, most people have said, well, impact investing can't play a role there. And people have sort of said, well, we can kind of do proxy voting and things like that. And proxy voting is really, it, it serves a purpose, but it's not really going to help you make um, a difference. And what investors are starting to do there is to actually say, what's my contribution here? How do I actually build consortia of shareholders in order to be, I mean, and those kind of blocks are being very useful on the financial side to push an impact agenda forward. And so that becomes quite crucial to be able to actually think about contribution as being a series of feedback loops that help me as an investor engage in ways that are fundamentally different if I didn't have that information. That's right. I think impact in listed markets is, is contentious, but really interesting. And we can't ignore the listed markets, you know, huge, huge potential for impact there. And you talked about voting I often think as engagement, as really being where the rubber hits the road, it's a lever for change. Do you think there are some other elements that they can drive that contribution? Yeah. So, I mean, it is fair to say that, you know, much of impact investing has gathered ground in private markets, but public market actors are increasingly starting to um, play with exactly what it is that we can do. And, and I mean, in our last investor survey, this was the second biggest asset class that was growing in terms of the number of investments that investors were actually making. So it tells you something that, that this is increasingly an asset class where impact 
impact investors are seeking to figure out how it is that they engage. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more difficult, and it's not you can't just cut and paste what private markets have done into public markets. And so there are a series of working groups to try and figure that puzzle out. But some of them are related to things like, firstly, what are our targets with these kinds of investments? So some of the listed market investors are thinking about, hold on a second, maybe I need to actually define my priorities here and my targets a little bit better than I am at the moment. In other words, to avoid being so broad and to try and, in fact, actually say, this is what it is that I actually want to achieve. And so when I go in with proxy votes or at an AGM or engagement or talk to management, if I'm a big enough block, I do it with a particular agenda in mind. Now, that might sound fairly basic, but what we found is, is, is that a lot of even sometimes institutional asset owners that might use a range of asset classes, including public equities, don't do this probably effectively enough. They're often very keen to get to the measurement side of things, but not necessarily in the context of having set those priorities and targets in the first place. There's a nuance to that as well, is, is that setting targets is one thing, but doing it in the understanding of what the context data actually looks like is absolutely crucial. In other words, if I don't know the size of the problem that I'm trying to solve, how can I set a target when I don't know the nature of that problem? Definitely. Oh, look, you used my favorite word, and that's nuance. And, and that's, <laughs> that's what we're always trying to dig into, is read between the lines and find that detail. And you're really thorough. And I just wonder... This is getting into a bit more of a personal mode, but but what brought you into this space? What sort of got you excited about, you know, the world of financial services and trying to find a different way and deeper metrics and more nuance? It's such a big question, um, John, and I and I, I sometimes struggle to answer it without um, getting very emotional. But I did not start out in finance or in impact measurement and management or in research at all. What I started out was I, I grew up, as you can gather from my accent, in South Africa and grew up in an environment and a family where we looked very carefully beyond just the boundaries of our very privileged picket fence. And in, in South Africa, I was, you know, born in the, in the heat, in the 60s, in the heat of apartheid. I went to high school in one of the first integrated schools in South Africa by, run by a bunch of crazy Catholic nuns who um, were not going to accept the fact that separate education was on the statute books and so opened their school to everybody. And I, most of my high school years were in the 70s which was a very tumultuous, violent, messy time in South Africa's history. And so it was right in my face. And I um, couldn't help myself. I think I terrified my mother um, completely about trying to, to uh, getting involved in, in what was the early foundations um, of an anti-apartheid movement. And my mother at that point realized that people died doing this. People gave up lots to do this. I lived with a lot of shame for many, many years about the fact that I didn't do enough um, and that I could retreat to my very privileged position in a leafy suburb somewhere because there was a Group Areas Act that actually dictated where people lived and didn't live or couldn't live. And so 
it was a long journey eventually to get to a point of just looking at the world and recognizing that it is not a fair place and that it is not fair for everyone and that that isn't okay. And what was I going to do about it? Most of my friends were immigrating to places like Australia or the UK or Canada or whatever. And at the time, my partner and I made a decision that we were not. And if we were not, what was the contribution that we were going to make? And that was, that was a crucial kind of decision point. So South Africa went through an, an absolutely amazing and miraculous transition in 1994, which I'm proud to be part of in some way. But the transformation of a society is a much more systemic thing that takes years and decades and generations. And I'm in for the long haul, if that makes sense. And so feel very, very strongly about these issues, not only within a South African context, but also globally. There are many systems, and we see them daily, that are just not working for people and for planet. That includes our financial systems and our food systems. I mean, we're about to see a really, really, really tragic situation play out in most of the emerging markets because one of the major food baskets in the world, Ukraine, is not going to be able to distribute its harvest to mostly the developing world. And I don't think people have comprehended what that means in, in some kind of way. So these systems, these major systems are not working. And so how do we actually change them? And so my small part is about knowledge and, and research and being able to actually expand on that in a way that helps people understand what they're doing with their money um, in a way that is useful. So I think there's a lot in the financial systems that need to change as well. And what does that look like? It looks like knowing what your investments are doing, whether you are the person in the street. You know, I, I look at my own portfolio, my own little pension fund, which is teeny tiny compared to some of the ones that I talk to, and say, what is that actually doing? Yes, it's providing me with something that I might hope to retire to, but does it also contribute the world in which I want to retire to as well? Because I not only want to have enough money, but I also want to be able to actually retire to a place that not only me, but the people that I care about in my close circle and my broader circle are also taken care of. So I just, you know, intrinsically feel that that's something that is important for all of us. Oh, thank you, Dean. Thank you for sharing that. I think we've we've talked about a lot of the nuts and bolts of impact investing, but it, but it really is so important to bring that back down to ground and talk about the the need, you know, the the, the origins of it in terms of of trying to to write some of this this inequality and as you said this lack of fairness um, and really brings it home to how important it is and, and as you said more important than ever with, with wars and, and likely famine and that sort of thing could talk about that all day but but i will keep us on train and we've, we've talked about a lot of the origin stories we, we've talked about uh, the frameworks and how they've built up um, and that's i think a lot talking about impact practice uh, but, but the next step is talking about performance, which is really exciting. Uh, Jin's got done a lot of work there, built the, the compass system, and now it's all about putting together some benchmarks. So can you tell us about the progress there? Yeah, so, so the origin story for that, I think, is also important, is, is that 
even though we knew investors could, might be able to measure their performance they, and whether they were doing that with metrics or processes, as we've talked about in terms of those different kind of frameworks to use to do that, one of the things that we started recognizing was is that investors were struggling to understand whether their performance was actually good enough. If I, for example, was interested in financial inclusion and wanted to know that I could service 10,000 clients with responsible financial services products at the base of the, of the pyramid, as it were, I wanted to know whether 10,000 clients was actually some kind of measure of good enough. Now, the only way in which I can do that, or one of the only ways in which I can do that, is if I know what my peers are doing, okay, in the same area, or I know whether that is actually contributing to, let's just say, a, a sustainable development goal that specifically has that as a target. How much did I, as an investor, need to contribute to solving that bigger problem? Up until now, investors have not been able to do that. They've not been able to compare their performance in a normalized way or a weighted way with their peers and the extent of the problem that they're actually trying to solve. So the GIN has been working on this. This has been a, a three, four-year research project. We've obviously published things along the way where we first of all said we asked ourselves a couple of basic questions. The first iteration of this, we said, is this even feasible? And so our early study in this area was we picked two themes and we said, let's just try and do a, a test case. Is it feasible? We had very small samples. A lot of people criticized us for having very small samples. We said, we're not worried about the sample. We're just trying to ask the question, is it in fact actually feasible? And we figured out that in fact it was. The next question that we actually asked is to say, is there a methodical way in which you can do this? In other words, that across a number of themes, is there a pattern in which you can actually do this? And that's what really gave birth to a methodology. We published it as an as a open public good and called it Compass, but it really is a method to be able to actually say to investors and to service providers, here's how you can do it. Go and build some things. What we also discovered in that process was that investors needed to perhaps have not just one data point that told them something of their portfolio, they actually needed a couple, a, a handful of them. One to tell them how much they were doing, okay, how fast they were doing it, and thirdly, how effectively they were doing it or how efficiently they were doing it for every dollar of investment they made. So just those things were, were telling us that they needed a handful of, of pieces of information to do that. So what we did when building the benchmark is that it's a proof of concept, is that we're, we're actually saying, okay, let's take our own methodology and let's in fact actually build something and see whether you can actually benchmark performance in a particular theme. We chose a theme because it's where most investors across many of their portfolios and we knew this from our own research, have most of their assets allocated to or a good deal of them allocated to it. So that's why we chose financial services and focused on financial inclusion. And, and that's what we produced um, and launched earlier this year. So for the first time, if you think about it, investors are able to actually gauge what is good enough performance actually look like. Okay, how do I stack up next to my peers 
uh, now there may be some rude awakenings in that, okay? A lot of impact investors like the good news story, and when they get the feedback that, oh, okay, maybe I'm not so, you know, my peer is in fact actually doing better than me, it should force you to ask questions. Why is that? What are they doing that's different? What could I do to improve? And so we come back to this decision point again, which I think is important. And why financial inclusion? Yeah, so, I mean, our investor surveys over many years told us that, in fact, actually a good deal of, of impact investors' investment portfolios, their assets under management, was allocated to financial inclusion. Whether it's a, a, a sign of idiocy or not, um, the gin doesn't always choose the easiest things to actually do. So we, we literally said we want to roll out benchmarks going forward as a proof of concept. Um, the next stage would be to scale these, and we hope that others and invite others to actually build alongside us uh, as well or separately to us doesn't matter as long as people are building but we chose those sectors based on where most of the assets under management are currently allocated and so financial services or financial inclusion and microfinance was a big one um, by its nature the next one is agriculture which is arguably a, a much more difficult sector because it's so diverse crop yields are different geographies are different that's what we're working out now um, we've, we're currently building that benchmark at the moment as, as a proof of concept. Very good. And, and that's it, this comparison. I mean, it's always been a challenge even within a portfolio, um, let alone with your peers. And so at least making a differentiation between sectors is, is really clear, really important. Um, uh, have you mapped out what you think are those those major sectors? I mean, you mentioned financial inclusion, agriculture. Is there sort of a, a list to, to how we can collate them? Yeah, so so we kind of see it as a, as a bit of a matrix. And, I, you know, I was um, part of developing the impact investing industry in South Africa. Um, and part of that was, was really developing those early products. And what we realized was exactly the point that you're making is, is that it was very difficult to actually compare an investment in housing to one in agriculture, particularly if you've got a multifocal um, portfolio. And what we found was that there's a cross-cutting thing that we were actually trying to address. So that we find that in, in what we're doing with this benchmark work is each benchmark may have a vertical in terms of a theme, but there are horizontal layers that go across. So for example, gender is one, equality is another, um, you could put those two together. Greenhouse gas emissions is, is another one. Quality jobs is another one that crosses a multitude of them. Now, it won't do it perfectly in every vertical, but those if you think of a benchmark as being a vertical, um, and then woven through that is another benchmark, if you want to, um, that crosses horizontally. And that's, we think, we haven't got there yet, but we think that that's the way in which you build a portfolio view. At the moment, we're looking at an investment view. Very good. Oh, look, that, that's amazing. That, that's really helped me tie that together. And, and there's obvious linkages there or similarities to the SDGs. Uh, which cover off on some of those horizontal layers. But look, this has been great. We, we went right back to the beginning, talked about some of the origins, and, and we're right here now talking about where you know Ginny's looking forward um, and, and the hopes and aspirations. So look, I think that was a really, a really practical, really useful wrap-up of where we've been and where we're going. But before I let you go, it would be great to get a book recommendation. The book that I'm currently reading at the moment is called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and it's by Dee Brown. And it is a, 
an indigenous history of the American West. And I think that it, it speaks to me so strongly about the way in which we view um, history, because often we're taught it in schools as a series of facts. But in fact, it is actually depending on how you view it. And there's so little documented evidence of the history of the American West, and in fact, actually the history of any country or region or mechanism, if you think about it from the perspective of different stakeholders in the actual lived experience of that history. Um, and I think it's really important to, to kind of link that back. I spoke earlier a little bit about my experience of growing up in, a, in an apartheid kind of context, and it really is in the eye of the beholder how you want to see things. And I think it's important sometimes just to be able to actually also bring that through to measurement, is, is that what are we looking for to be able to make the decisions that we want to make? And how does that actually link back to how we choose to see things? Definitely. Oh, no, look, and, and, and that can all be echoed in Australia as well with the, the history and the, the whitewashing of, of colonialization here. And, and there have been some great books, uh, Dark Emus, one that comes through a lot uh, trying to to rewrite that history and dig into some of the the yeah some of the stories that that were being told. Well, look, Dean, thank you for this really great sort of broad overview, and uh, and it sounds like you guys are working hard. So we'll have to catch up again in the future and, and catch up on progress. Thank you so much, John. It was lovely to talk to you too, and and thank you for the honour of being able to talk to you today. Pleasure. Thanks, Dean.